I suggest every time we want to cuss, we say duck that or duck this. Uh, you think this is going to be the one episode that I don't have to put the explicit little warning sign on for Apple Podcasts where they ask me, is this explicit? And I say, fuck, yes. But this time I'm going to say duck. No, it's not explicit. Well, then my million dollar fuck this movie joke won't work because it'll just be million dollar duck this movie. <laughs> that still makes sense. That's still funny. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since it started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's called The Podcast or Tennis Shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,766 movies on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bob and Rob. And Rob is broadcasting from the center of the earth, I'm presuming, because he is operating at a pretty serious lag. So we are going to try our best to make it through this episode. All right. I'm up north. I will I will do my best not to talk uh, as much. I didn't particularly like this film, so I don't know how much I'm going to add to the conversation anyways. <laughs> so uh, I will... Uh, I'll... I'll, I'll Toss some things here and there, but hopefully you won't have to edit me too, too much there, Sean. Well, unfortunately, I was relying on Rob to walk us through the plot of this movie. Oh, no. I watched it like a week ago, and my recollections are hazy at this point. But we're going to do our best because we watched Million Dollar Duck. And I have yet to ask Bobby how he's doing. I was just going to say, not to be confused with, I believe, the 2016 documentary, The Million Dollar Duck, which is about duck hunting licenses in the United States. Oh, I thought you were about to say that there was a documentary about an actual golden egg laying <laughs> duck. Because one of my biggest complaints about this movie was that there was too much scientific explanation. So I can't imagine how boring a documentary would be. Was it 64 or 54 last week? How many have, How many are we behind now? <laughs> it was 64 last week. It's now 66. There have been two movies added since the last time. They are a uh, documentary called Leave No Trace or a movie called Leave No Trace. I, I didn't write down what it is. There's something <laughs> called Leave No Trace and there's something called Tell We Meet Again. I thought both of the films were called Leave No Trace. I thought it was a documentary <laughs> called Leave No Trace and a film called Leave No Trace. They were there and now they're gone. I could have sworn there was two more movies. Weirdly enough, Disney <laughs> Plus has actually been a little slow on the movie uptake. The last two months have had a lot of new content, but it's mostly TV shows. Reservation Dogs, great TV show. Um, I'm liking The Bear. Uh, surprisingly, I'm liking Andor, considering how terrible the last few Star Wars projects have been. But, um, Andor seems pretty good. But in terms of movies, pickings are slim, but it allows us to catch up a little bit. So we're slowly making our way to 1,766, boys. And today, it was Million Dollar Duck. This is probably my fault. I'm not sure if this was officially my choice, but I've been bringing it up for a while. So, uh, maybe it's my turn to eat crow or eat duck, so to speak, because um, not a great movie. Although I do kind of suspect I might like it more than other people. Because um, the reviews in this movie are terrible. When it came out, people are like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, what the fuck is going on at Disney? Correct. Walt Disney died, and they're putting out this bullshit? <laughs> Contemporary reviews are not much better. Was this the one I read that this was one of the, like, three movies ever that Siskel walked out of? Oh, I think it was, yeah. I think I read that on, like, the Wikipedia description or something. Yeah. What? To be honest, I don't get that. Because I don't think this movie is that bad. To start off, this movie, a little bit of background... It was uh, written by a gentleman named Roswell Rogers, and Mr. Rogers wrote a lot of television. He wrote for the television series Gentle Ben about the friendly grizzly bear. <laughs> he wrote a lot of episodes for the show Father Knows Best, which is like stereotypical like 50s Leave it to Beaver or Dennis the Menace, but without the menace. Very old-timey sitcom stuff. I I'm just stuck on a TV show just simply called Dennis. It's like, what does he do? Like, well, nothing. <laughs> 
<laughs> you, just because of Dennis without the menace. <laughs> That's what this guy wrote. He has one additional film credit. It was a Disney movie that came out two years after this movie called Charlie and the Angel. It is a Kurt Russell film from 1973. And then the guy retired. So those are his credits. He wrote a lot of sitcom stuff. And then he wrote two Disney movies. That doesn't surprise me because this movie feels very sitcom-y to me. Not necessarily in a bad way. I kind of got a couple chuckles from some of the jokes. I don't think they're particularly bad jokes, especially if you watch it as a sitcom. Like what? <laughs> like what? <laughs> what was, what'd you laugh at, Sean? Name one fucking joke. <laughs> so fucking accusatory. <laughs> All right. This one, uh, I didn't necessarily laugh at, but it reminded me of a joke I did laugh at. So I consider it to be a chuckle-worthy joke. And that is right at the beginning, the wife is introduced making applesauce and she mixes up the recipe. And so the page turns and then she accidentally starts reading a recipe for like a curry. And then so she puts garlic and uh, like cumin into this applesauce. And she's just like, oh, okay. And then she starts putting it in. It's supposed to be this joke about how ditzy she is. She's the stereotypical, like, blonde ditz character. But the exact same joke is in an episode of Friends, where Rachel makes an English... Oh, the trifle? The trifle. It accidentally There's confuses no it. in the trifle? <laughs> she puts, like, beef and potatoes in her trifle. It's the exact same joke, and it's, like, a famous Friends joke. Like, you know what I'm referring to. Yeah, Joey eats the fuck out of it. He loves it. I liked some of her other jokes. Like, she says things like, I have 20-20 hearing. Yeah, like, that was good. So that's what I'll say for it. Getting back to the credits, I'll say it was directed by Vincent McAvity. I believe is how you pronounce his name. McAvity. McAvity. Uh, this was his second film. He came from television, which again, you can very obviously tell because it's shot like a sitcom. Yeah. Um, he then went on to direct a bunch of Disney sequels. He directed uh, The Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. Not the first Apple Dumpling Gang movie. He directed Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. He directed Herbie Goes Bananas. So he's the guy you bring in to direct the fourth movie in a franchise. If you're wondering the quality of director you're bringing in on this one. It has music by Buddy Baker, who did a lot of Disney stuff. He was actually a major composer for Disney theme park rides, the music that they play at Disneyland. Um, it's mostly... Fine and forgettable, except the opening credits have this theme song that is quite possibly the worst composition Ugh. I have ever heard in my life. It sounds like it was written to drive a person insane. It's something they play for inmates at Guantanamo Bay <laughs> as some sort of, like, war crime. Like, it is a breach of international protocols to play this for people. It's just a kazoo with quacking noises and then, like... A cash register ka-ching sound, and it goes for like 10 minutes. Like somehow he's made a composition out of those three instruments. And this is not the part where I go, and it's impressive because it actually works. It doesn't work. No. It's just the worst thing you've ever heard in your life. The rest of the score is, I don't, it's whatever. I don't even think about it. But that opening song is the worst thing I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, I wrote, uh, fuck this kazoo. That was my first note. <laughs> for the whole film. The cast of it, very briefly, is our good friend Dean Jones playing Albert Dooley. Sandy Duncan playing his wife, Katie Dooley, or am I reading that wrong? I'm gonna assume it's Katie Dooley. I got bad handwriting. Joe Flynn plays his nosy IRS slash Treasury Department slash Secret Service slash what the fuck? omnipotent KGB guy. Tony Roberts plays Fred Hines. And then some other people do some other shit. I don't give a damn. Bobby, tell me how this movie starts. I was trying to figure out how old Dean Jones' character is supposed to be in this. Right? Because <laughs> I, I, I was like, is he graduating high school or college? <laughs> like, I, yeah, I was like, is he supposed to be like 26 or like, is he like 55? I couldn't tell. <sighs> Ever since we last saw him in Blackbeard's Ghost, which is four or five years earlier, he has more of a receding hairline. So he does look quite a bit older, and they now call him Professor. The movie opens, and he's looking at bills. He's overwhelmed with the amount of bills they have, and they can't afford to pay them all. And he looks up, and he has this, like, certificate. It's not his degree. It's not his high school graduation diploma. He has, like, a computer printout certificate that you would 
would get from like when you graduate grade six and go into grade seven. And it says like most likely to succeed. And then he flashes back to a graduation of some sort where they shake his hand and declare him to be the most likely to succeed. To the best of my knowledge, most likely to succeed is awarded at high school. It's not your college graduation, yeah. let alone the multiple degrees you would have to get to be professor, but I don't really know what his qualifications are. I kind of suspect the professor moniker that he goes by is either self-administered or <laughs> it's sarcastic. I don't think he is a professor. Because, you know, he's working in a lab, like, underneath someone who's clearly a professor, Dr. Gottlieb. He's the assistant in a lab, which means to me, like, it suggests to me, like, he's a PhD student. Maybe? Sure. I mean, you can still be a, a lab tech with a PhD. You can be a postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. But he's not referred to as doctor. If he had a doctorate in a lab, they would call him doctor. It would be an honorific. Yeah. Dr. Gottlieb would call him doctor. Yeah, he's not teaching anything. No, which it also makes it inexplicable. Like, he might be an assistant prof who teaches one course while he's working in a lab you know, those people don't make a lot of money, and they sometimes call themselves professor. That's the best, that's the most that I can give this movie. That's the best explanation I can give it, is that yeah, he has a master's, he's working in a lab, and he's an assistant professor who teaches, like, one course to, like, introductory mathematics or something. But does he work at a university? I just, I, I thought it was just, like, a vegan nightmare factory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a university lab, because it's, a, <laughs> there's multiple different things going on. Yeah. I don't think they have an irradiation wing in a vegan uh, nightmare factory. I mean, they might. You never know. Robbie, tell me what happens after he flashes back and imagines what his life should have been after he was declared most likely to succeed in grade six. His son shows up with a puppy um, with from a neighborhood kid. Uh, this redhead boy that just doesn't change facial expressions while staring, doesn't have a line of dialogue. He just stares at Dean Jones being like, give me 50 bucks. The way that kid stares at Dean Jones and the way that Dean Jones yeah. slowly becomes intimidated by this small child also <laughs> made me laugh. Yeah, that's fair. I wrote it down. So yeah. there's there's some good chuckle worthy jokes in here. But then Dean Jones decides to he, he decides to lay his financial burdens on his child and says, I can't afford the bills I already got. Uh, let alone this 50 bucks for this puppy. Sorry, buddy. And then it's the applesauce scene. We get introduced to his wife, who uh, is making the applesauce. Um, I did like how it was a long take. That whole scene where she's going back to the book, it was all done in in a one-er. Um, and she kept on going and getting different ingredients around the kitchen. I thought it was pretty good. And then Dean Jones has to eat it. And his... I, I said this in Blackbeard's Ghost, but I dug his acting. Again, I dug his acting. I loved it every time he said... Uh, what? He went, what? What? I loved it. I think Dean Jones, I mean, I did not like this movie, but he was one saving grace for me. I thought he was pretty good in it. I think I, I read actually that he, he was going through some stuff when this movie was made. It might have been around this time, but he was like in a touring show and was going through some personal things in his life. And this was actually kind of like a down point in his life where he went back to doing these kind of B-list Disney movies before becoming born again and doing a one-man show, but being born again. And I think that's kind of where his career like turned over for a second time. What? Not to be too much of a downer, but... What? Yeah, he became a evangelical Christian late in his career. At this point, I thought he was good. Yeah. I think he's fun. Um, I think he does as much with the material as can be possibly expected of an actor. Um, he got some laughs when his <laughs> wife feeds him this applesauce that she's accidentally put garlic and cumin powder in. He has to like slowly nod and go, mm, it's really good. And it's a low bar joke, but he made me laugh. It's pretty funny. All right. You're making me like this movie a bit more. My impression of it is that I think this movie is a decent episode of a 1960s sitcom. If this was an episode of I Dream of Genie, I would have watched it and I would have said, yeah. I Dream of Genie was an okay sitcom. It's basically that level of quality. And if you go in expecting that, it's not bad. Um, if you go in expecting anything of cinematic <laughs> quality, you will be sorely disappointed. I, I, I say I wanted to like this scene and uh, Sandy Duncan does a really great job. Um, something that overshadowed my enjoyment of this film in general is just how fucking sexist it is. And I couldn't get past that in this intro scene to her. I was thinking about that. And 
she plays a stereotypical dumb blonde character. Uh, the movie doesn't have a lot of respect for her. This is something that turned up a lot in the 60s, 70s. It still turns up. I think when it turns up today, it's treated a lot differently than when it turned up in the 60s and 70s. This is similar to the character that like Goldie Hawn played in Laugh-In. I kind of let it slide over me because of the era. Like maybe that's my failing. I certainly am not the person to say what is and is not offensive or it's going to rub people the wrong way. I totally understand why it would bug you to just have the main female character be a friggin moron. <laughs> but I thought it was kind of funny. I took it as like a Goldie Hawn kind of a laughing character. Yeah. That being said, I like I think she she nails it. Like she knocks it out of the park and is like she is she's doing a very good job, but that's just me. With the material that she's given, she's pretty good. Like, uh, when she's actually allowed to let loose a little bit, like when she's going into the different uh, gold refineries, I don't know what to call them. She, she's having a blast with it. But yeah, the portrayal, I mean, it is, you know, full on stereotypical. To make another example to friends, uh, the character of Joey is extremely dumb. And you can imagine everything that the character of the wife in this movie does <laughs> happening to the character of Joey in Friends. I'm just imagining Matt LeBlanc in this movie now as the wife. <laughs> it would work. It would be the exact same. It would be exactly the same. And part of that, though, is that when you create this character of, like, the dumb blonde, and then, you know, Goldie Hawn became famous doing this character, it becomes a trope, then it becomes a stereotype, and then it, at some point, this is just how you're portraying blonde women now. Yeah. What um, what were we talking about? The, the Dean Jones hasn't even gone to work yet. Basically, uh, <laughs> he's just getting the applesauce. That's where we're at. So Dean Jones gets his applesauce and he goes to work the next morning. Uh, he takes the applesauce with him, even though he clearly doesn't like it very much. And he gets in the car and he picks up his best friend or his his carpooling buddy, Tony Roberts. They don't work together. One's a lawyer, one's a professor. And I'm using air quotes when I say that. Where is he driving him? He, well, he doesn't seem to be a successful lawyer and we'll get to it. But he also appears to be like a better call Saul-esque money laundering criminal lawyer. <laughs> so he could easily just be like... Not a criminal lawyer, but a criminal lawyer. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's literally the joke from Breaking Bad, but thank you, Bobby. <laughs> yeah. We don't need a criminal lawyer. We need a criminal <laughs> lawyer, bitch. There's my uh, Aaron Paul Aaron <laughs> Paul impression. Yeah. I, who the fuck knows what crimes he's getting up to while Dean Jones is at school? <laughs> but Tony Roberts gets in the car and they drive to work. Now, this kind of blew my mind. I didn't know Tony Roberts was in this movie until he got in the car. And Tony Roberts is famous for one thing. He's in half a dozen Woody Allen movies as Woody Allen's best friend. Really? And he's always playing the same role. He's always playing the guy that is like next to Woody Allen as Woody Allen drives around and does his weird, creepy Woody Allen shit. And Tony Roberts <laughs> comments on all the crazy stuff that he's doing. This came out before Annie Hall, before Tony Roberts was in Play It Again, Sam, which was the first Woody Allen movie that he was in. I have to think Woody Allen cast him based on this movie because this is the biggest thing yep. that he had ever been in before he was in like half a dozen Woody Allen movies, which means Woody Allen looked at this movie and said, you know what? This guy is very good at playing the best friend of a neurotic misanthrope who is married to someone with the maturity and intelligence of a child. <laughs> so he should probably always play my best friend. I loved uh, I loved when he uh, would, he was going like, Al, baby. Which is what he says in all of the Woody Allen movies. <laughs> I think he says Al, baby, to be perfectly honest, even when Woody isn't playing a character named Al. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. He just didn't change characters. He's always playing the lawyer for Million Dollar Duck in all of the uh, Woody Allen films. As someone who's never seen a Woody Allen film, I'm just going to take your word for all of that. I mean, I, I don't think we're in a place where I can advocate for watching any of them. So just fair enough. Just <laughs> yeah. take my word for it. I, I, I will take your word for it. And I will say no more on the subject of Mr. Woody Allen. <laughs> anyway, so uh, they go to work. And we have uh, a scene where uh, Al, baby, Al, sweetie. 
uh, he goes and sees all of his animals in the uh, in the cages that they are being scientifically tested on. We get a nice shot of a chimpanzee in a little three by three inch cage. Uh, we get to see uh, the million dollar duck. Uh, first shot of it, he steals uh, Dean Jones's lunch. Uh, no, sorry, first the chimpanzee uh, steals the lunch, takes one taste of the applesauce and throws it away and the duck likes it and eats all of it the actual professor comes in and he says let's go get some animals to test and uh dean Dean jones for whatever reason says let's get the duck i like the duck they grab the duck and the duck fails all of the tests all you have to do is like hit a button or something and you get some food but it decides to hit the button that has uh, a tape recording of a dog barking and then it lays an egg and that's pretty much a theme for the rest of the film, uh, unfortunately, is that every time the duck hears barking at the certain octave, certain register, uh, it lays an egg. John, did you do any research? How how, how many uh, eggs can a duck lay in a day? Because I don't think it's four. I did a lot of research for this episode. Um, here are the things that I researched. The U.S. Congressional Research Service's paper on history of the gold standard. <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Executive Order 6102, also known as the Gold Hoarding Law. Charles de Gaulle's 1965 speech on exorbitant privilege <laughs> that led to him sending the Navy to America to pick up their gold. Uh, the history of American humane and humane Hollywood and the no animals were harmed during this movie moniker. <laughs> I also looked up how many eggs a duck can lay in a day? And the answer is one. It's not an exact 24-hour cycle, but over the course of approximately a day, a duck can produce one egg. (laughs) They cannot produce four eggs. But to be fair, this duck has been belted by gamma rays, much like the Incredible Hulk. Ain't he unglamorous, (laughs) as the chorus of the theme song would go. Uh, So who knows what this duck (laughs) is capable of? I I said the exact same thing, Sean. I wrote that exact same note. Wait, you you wrote down Ain't he unglamorous from the theme song? (laughs) I I said Charlie blasted by gamma rays turns into the million dollars. The duck isn't she glamorous? <laughs> you actually wrote down the theme song. Okay, amazing. We'll get to it later on, but I had this weird prediction for the plot of the film, which ended up being right, that I was like, oh, like, so it's a mixture of his wife's horrible home cooking and radiology that gives this duck the ability to shit golden eggs. And it turns out that was correct. <laughs> the duck fails the test. The doctor is upset by this dumb duck being unable to press the right button and throws it out the door. The duck then proceeds to quack, quack, quack its way across the hall into radiology, where it wanders into a radioactive (laughs) test where they are belting silicon oils with gamma rays, much like they belted Dr. Bruce Banner and turned him into the Hulk. But the duck gets turned into... Just another duck, but that duck (laughs) happens to have one ability, that is to lay golden eggs. They don't quite know that yet, though, because they just kick the duck out of radiology, and Dean Jones picks it up. And then, I have a question here. When when Dean Jones first picks up the duck, he uses male pronouns. Oh, God, yes, this whole fiasco. He says, oh, he's going to be smart. He's going to beat this test today. He's going to be great. The duck then, when the dog barks at it, in the recording of the dog barks at it, the duck lays an egg, at which point Dean Jones, in the subsequent scene, when he picks it up from radiology, refers to it as a she, which is correct, because it's obviously a female duck. It's not a drake. It's a duck. However, he takes it home and then starts referring to it by male pronouns again. And throughout the course of the movie, they keep switching back and forth. And I can't, for the life of me, understand why. I mean, it would make sense if they defaulted to male and then once the duck started laying eggs, they're like, oh, it's a female. And then they gave it female pronouns. But it's like... 
there's a couple of scenes where they use female pronouns and then they just switch back to male. And I don't understand. It's so confusing. Why? Was it shot out of order? Did somebody three quarters of the way through the shoot be like, Drakes don't lay eggs. The plot of the film revolves around a duck laying an egg. You would think they would have worked that into the script that they would have known that female ducks lay eggs. The only explanation I have is that he calls the duck a man, or man, sorry, a, a male pronoun first, uh, and then lays an eggs, call, starts calling it a she, and then Max, or sorry, Max, whatever his kid's name is, I forget, uh, names it Charlie. Yeah. And uh, so then starts referring it to as a dude because of the name that he gave it to it. And then he just gets confused throughout the rest of the course of the film. He's not much of a professor. He forgets the gender of the duck and how the anatomy works with regards to laying eggs. I guess. I mean, like, to be fair, Charlie's a somewhat androgynous name. There are women with the name Charlie. Uh, I'm not sure why that throws everyone off, but it's very confusing that the movie seems to keep trying to default to male pronouns. Every time the duck lays an egg for like a couple of minutes, the characters will be like, oh, right, right, right. It's, It's a girl, it's a girl, it's a girl. She, she, she. And then they'll just forget. And then they'll just go back to he. Just, just to add to that, it's also just a movie about a duck that lays golden eggs. I don't think we need to read into it any further than that. It's weird. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to dig too deep into it, but the fact that they start using female pronouns and then switch back is weird. That's something that has an explanation that I don't, I can't wrap my head around. Okay. It's weird. He takes the duck home because he doesn't want them to eat it, I guess. Uh, He tells his wife that he's planning to give it to the farmer that comes around to give them expensive vegetables sometimes. The kid originally is upset because he wanted a puppy. Why would dad bring home a duck? But the duck is very affectionate towards the son. And so the son very quickly becomes enamored with the duck, becomes best friends with the duck, names the duck Charlie. We cut forward a little bit. Dean Jones, I believe, is playing chess that evening or something about his wife. And the duck breaks into the neighbor's yard and jumps in the neighbor's pool. And the neighbor, who we were briefly introduced to earlier because he's just this grumpy old neighbor who lives next door, who works for the Treasury Department and has everybody's money. Um, I'm going to comment a little bit about how this character is introduced. Dean Jones is talking to his wife about their horrible neighbor that they hate. And he says, oh, he works for the Treasury Department. He works for the IRS. He has all of our money. And... That really lays the ground for what I believe to be a movie highly politically motivated. I'm pretty sure the writer of this movie spent most of his his time with a copy of like the Washington Post and the Financial Times open in front of him, complaining about those Democrats in Washington and voting for Ronald Reagan as governor of California, because most of this movie is about like tax evasion. And the gold standard. It's very weirdly Republican. Uh, The thing I note instead of being Republican was that this movie like kind of lays the groundwork for libertarianism. There's this weird underlying commentary of a man should be able to keep what he earns. And we'll get to the end of the film. And that's kind of what the judge says when it goes to court. The judge is just the writer's insert character. Where the writer steps into the film like uh, a literal deus ex machina to bestow upon all the characters his writerly wisdom where he says, go forth and evade taxes. Sean, could you please tell me what the fuck is the problem with this, them having gold from this duck? Because I wrote so many notes being like, why, why can't they have, why, why? Like, what's the issue with them having this duck that can lay golden eggs? They're just like, they're just like, no, you can't possibly have this gold. And he's like, why, why the fuck can he? Why? What's, what's wrong? I don't understand any of this. Here's the thing. This is why I think I like this movie literally better than anyone else in the world. Like, it has like 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everything I've seen is like, this is the worst movie ever. But this is so fucking weirdly specific. This 
this guy had an agenda and he wrote the dumbest fucking possible movie <laughs> to advocate for it. So here's is here's the background. I'm going to fucking lecture you. Pull up a chair, boys. We're we're going to school. Okay. Please. Thank you. So, in 1932, <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt is elected to the presidency during the Great Depression. Banks are failing left and right. They cannot keep enough capital in order to meet the demands of their constituents. Part of that is that once people stop having trust in banks, they start hoarding any kind of other assets they can, including gold. America was on a gold standard at the time where dollars were convertible to a certain amount of gold. And so hoarding gold was a, was a way of maintaining your assets without relying on banks that could fail and wouldn't be able to pay out. However, because people were hoarding gold, the U.S. Treasury didn't have enough gold to pay out its international debts because people were hoarding it. They weren't letting the government hold on to it in exchange for cash, which was a problem for international affairs. Franklin Delano Roosevelt made it illegal to hold gold. In 1933, he passed an executive order that decreed that nobody could hold more than $100 worth of gold. Uh, there were some exceptions for collectible coins. There were some exceptions for certain kinds of jewelry. But for the most part, people could not hold on to more than $100 worth of gold. This was part of the efforts to stem the Great Depression. However, this policy basically just continued. This executive order was never repealed. And in fact, it continued through the 60s into the 70s. People were still not allowed to actually own gold in the United States in 1971 when this movie was made. This is something that we've kind of memory hold. Um, in Canada, the same laws weren't in place, so we didn't have this exact kind of experience. But I think most Americans probably don't even remember this. They weren't allowed to own gold privately in 1971, which is the basis for the entire plot of this movie. However, here's the thing. You're blowing my fucking mind, man. You're blowing my fucking mind. <laughs> Here is when that law changed. You want to know when that law changed? This movie came out in June 1971. In August 1971, wait, wait. Richard Nixon <laughs> announced that the US would no longer be part of the international gold standard. Uh, the dollar would not be pegged to the gold. Two months after this movie came out. You know, this movie may not be remembered for much, but I'm going to advocate from now on that this movie changed oh American God. policy, that yes. Richard Nixon was so yes. fucking swayed by this movie that he <laughs> uh -huh. changed international policy. Uh, officially, the, the executive order was repealed in 1974 by Gerald Ford, although the order of depegging the American dollar from gold standard was two months after this movie came out. So... There you go. There's a little bit of history for that's you. That's amazing. Nixon watched this and said, well, that's kind of dumb. Why can't that guy keep that duck egg? <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> so actually, that whole element of this movie is quite accurate. Thank you so much, because I have no idea what the fuck any of that was. And I just was basically, I have so many notes of me screaming at the TV going, why is this a plot point? Like... Why is this an issue? Just keep the keep the gold. Why is the Secret Service after this fucking duck? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I didn't understand any of it. Well, it was only relevant for two months. Two months <laughs> after this movie came out, it was old news. And it wasn't the law anymore. That's why it bombed. Yeah, back in the day when movies used to play for months at a time. This duck movie has changed my mind. <laughs> we got to talk about the pool scene because the pool scene is fucked up. Yeah, and that's going to bring me to my other research point. But go ahead, Bobby. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so the dog jumps in the pool to attack the duck and you as the audience member. I mean, this part is the real true vegan nightmare. You are treated to like seven minutes of this dog and this duck just fucking each other up like they are both <laughs> out for blood like my note is mortal combat um because you can tell that duck is fucking terrified and that dog is trying to eat it like they just no just keep rolling keep rolling this is great footage and it's uh like it, it was tough to watch it's it's a tough scene uh we don't know for sure whether or not any animals were harmed during the making of that scene so just a little bit of a background the dog and the duck are scuffling in the pool the duck 
is pecking at the dog and the dog kind of makes yelping noises that are very disturbing. The dog is snapping yeah. at the duck, which is also disturbing. Um, and at the end of the movie, there's no comforting statement that says no animals were harmed during the making of this film. The reason why, boys, pull up a stool. We're going back to school. It's only been 35 seconds since the last class. Okay, so American Humane is the society that usually monitors the humane uh, use mm -hmm. of animals in films. Policy called Humane Hollywood. This started in the year 1940. Uh, in that year, a horse was killed during the filming of a movie called Jesse James. Uh, a horse was run off a cliff where it was Whoa. killed um, in a very tragic way. Uh, the backlash to this implemented a declaration about the humane treatment of animals in films that was part of the Hayes Code. Oh. So the Hayes Code was a code of rules that all films needed to follow in order to be certified by the MPAA, which was required in order to be released in most theaters at the time. American Humane had to monitor the treatment of animals uh, from 1940 onward. However, in 1966, the Hayes Code was repealed. The MPAA changed the way in which they monitored films. Instead of implementing a code that all films had it to follow in order to be certified by the MPAA, instead the MPAA would rate a film after it was made. That created the rating system that we know today. Uh, but this meant that the Hayes Code was repealed, which meant that the obligation to have Humane Hollywood on set in order to be certified was also Jesus. repealed. From 1966 onward, it was therefore optional in order to have any kind of animal cruelty specialist on set to monitor the use of animals. This was the case until 1980. 80, when uh, the release of the film Heaven's Gate created some backlash because apparently a series of horses in that film oh, yeah. were killed. After that, what happened was the Screen Actors Guild, the Actors Union, put it in their union contracts that American Humane needed to be on set to monitor any films that used SAG actors. And since most films use SAG actors, certainly all studio films, they need to have someone on set from American Humane to monitor the use of animals in their films. So from 1980 onward, then you got this, no animals were harmed during the making of this film. 1966 to 1980, though, is a gray zone. There's no statements. There's no requirements. Nobody knows what happened. And I don't know what happened during this film. Nobody does. And it looks like that dog and that duck are not having a good time. So it's kind of upsetting. I don't know for sure. Maybe that's editing. You know, it could be. I don't want to say that it was cruelty, but it's hard to watch. Even the way that they, uh, like, just manhandle that duck. Like, they just pick up that duck and just throw it around. Yeah. Like, it's not nice. Like, they're not being gentle with that thing sometimes. It is even that, like, regardless of the literal, like, cockfight they had with the, the dog and the duck. Certainly, if this was a film that had a certification, you could be like, well, no matter what it looks like, that duck was okay. Duck specialist says, yeah, that duck's fine. Then I guess that duck's fine. But we don't really have that assurance. So you watch it and you're like, is that duck okay? Who the fuck knows? Yeah. It's, it's fucking Wild West out there, you know? Or they when they're holding it down. Like, when they're just, like, holding it down and barking at it, it's like, I don't think that duck's having a good time. I mean, even if there was an American Humane person on set, considering it's 1971, I still imagine the standards are such that it would still be quite horrific. Even the no animals were harmed standard in 1971 yeah. is pretty low standard. It would be like, <laughs> you know, someone who was like, hey, is this okay? Yeah, I'm sure he's fine. And then he goes back to his cigarette. <laughs> and then, like, you throw the duck. All the behind-the-scenes stuff would just be uh, long takes of Dean Jones barking at a fucking duck. I'm really glad there was no social media then for his sake. But, like, there's so many shots of him just, like, down at all fours barking at this duck. And there's there's part of me that would be like, how far had he fallen at that point in time? <laughs> Poor Dean Jones. This is, this is what drove him to evangelicalism. Yeah. Was that he found himself <laughs> on all fours barking at a duck. And there was a part of his brain that just went, there has to be something more to life than this. This was like his Saul falling from the donkey moment. But instead of Saul on the road to Damascus, instead it's Dean Jones on all fours barking. Barking at a dog. 
I would love that Caravaggio painting, to be honest. Let's go quickly through this. I think we've talked a lot about the underlying elements that we feel about this movie. I'm just going to say, when the dog is fighting with the duck, they take it out of the pool and they find that the barking dog triggers the duck to lay an egg. Not only one egg, it lays four eggs. Now, the family is quite happy about this. Uh, the wife suggests maybe we can eat these eggs. Dean Jones says, this egg was belted by gamma rays and it turned into the Hulk, inky and glamorous. We're not eating these eggs. I'm going to bury them in the yard. Why would he bury the eggs? I don't know. Like, just throw them out. Yeah. I'd... Why would that such a specific thing to do? He's like, uh, I'm going to wait till midnight and go dig a hole in the backyard, all shifty-like, and bury four duck eggs. Like, there's no goddamn reason for it. <laughs> I feel like he thinks they're radioactive, but if he thinks the eggs are radioactive, the duck has to be radioactive. Right? And the duck is fucking sleeping with his son, so it doesn't make any yeah. sense. He finds that the duck eggs, they definitely are not edible because the egg yolk is now made out of gold. The duck is laying golden eggs. Oh my god, it's the Aesop fable come to life. That's what this movie is about. He goes into work the next day. I'm seriously going to rush through this. Yeah, you guys it. are on a lag. Just interrupt me if you have jokes to do it. He goes into work the next day. He asks uh, his German doctor, um, uh, German doctor man, is it possible to turn an organic egg, egg yolk into gold? Bobby, in your best German impression, tell me what the German doctor says. It, it, it tells him that yes, I suppose it is theoretically possible that at one time a man was able to synthesize gold. And Dean Jones jumps up and says, ah, oh, good enough for me, and leaves the room. Here's the thing, Bobby, I like how you tell that with German efficiency, um, because that scene is like fucking 10 minutes long. It's so long. They just, they talk about physics for so long. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, nobody fucking cares about your explanation for how this happened. It's an Aesop fable. Yeah. Stop fucking talking about physics. I was just going to say, the uh, the professor, or the actual professor, somehow knows that uh, of this experiment. He's just like, ah, yes, but actually this happened one time in Sweden or something. He's just like, off the top of his head, he knows this experiment for no reason whatsoever. And then he just happens to have a book on his shelf with the results of it. Okay, so anyway, he's like, ah, oh, excellent. This is great. I have these golden eggs. This duck is going to lay golden eggs. He goes to Tony Roberts and he's like, Tony Roberts, my duck lays golden eggs. And Tony Roberts is like, Al, baby, that's dumb. And he's like, I'll come show you. They take him home and he's like, uh, wife, where's my golden eggs and my duck? And the wife says, I gave him to the farmer, like you said. And he says, ah, de libre, Augustine. <laughs> and they get in the car and they drive to the farmers. He fucking throttles her first. He grabs her and shakes her like pretty violently. That was something I was not fucking into. <laughs> Yeah. So they go to the farmer. Uh, the farmer has like a thousand ducks. And they're like, how are we ever going to find which duck was ours? Uh, but luckily the duck- They fuck over this farmer. They leave their gate open. They say that the the duck is out back. Uh, go get him. And there's like, I, I, I mean, I didn't count, but it looks like a hundred to 200 ducks in the back pen. And they're all on all fours, crawling around, barking at these ducks, poor Dean Jones and Tony Roberts. And then uh, they leave the gate open uh, because Charlie just, uh, Charlie, sorry, the kid walks back to the car and uh, the duck follows him. But they leave the gate open and, and all the ducks just go into the river. And I'm like, this poor farmer, like yep. they ruined his livelihood. They don't give a shit about him. Hey, listen, this movie is about libertarianism. All right. <laughs> Fuck that farmer. Okay. He should have had a contract with him before he let him into his gated community, his gated duck community, all right? Negative externalities. It's the tragedy of the commons. Let's keep going. They get their duck back because the duck that they like happens to like their son who follows their son. And they say, that's the golden egg duck. They take the golden egg duck home and they sit down and they say, okay, how are we going to make money off of this duck? And then they sit down with Saul Goodman and they figure huh. out a way to money launder all of this fucking gold because the big thing about this movie is that number one they don't want their gold to be taxed because fuck the government number two the government says you're not allowed to keep gold but fuck the government number three fuck the government <laughs> they need to figure out a way to keep all of this the, 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 the note I, I wrote for this scene in the movie was don't quack on me <laughs> don't quack on me oh fuck yes 
they're figuring out a way to launder all of this gold and his wife gets a phone call from the bank and the bank says you've been passing bad checks I, I want i want to go back to this really quickly this was the scene that got a laugh out of me to prove there is like some jokes in the movie they're looking at the duck in bed with the son and the wife says you should tuck him in she's talking about the son and dean jones tucks in the duck and leaves his son without a blanket loved it it was funny i laughed it's a sitcom joke it's the aesop's fable right they're um changed by their wealth right <laughs> his wife buys a new hat tony curtis uh, buys a sports car and new suit and stuff. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Dean Jones can't buy anything he wants. But that's the whole thing, right? Is, is, uh, you, you can't, uh, I guess the money will change you, uh, is the underlying theme of this, right? No, the moral of the story is mo duck eggs, mo problems. <laughs> yeah, Tony Curtis buys a sports car, but. <laughs> He hasn't got any of the cash yet. Like, what is this guy doing? Like, where is he getting this money from? Where is he getting the credit from to buy a sports car, a new suit jacket? Like, I'm pretty sure immediately after this movie ends, Tony Curtis has his kneecaps broken by the gangster that he's been living on credit. What I think is actually going on is I think that he's already laundering money for somebody else. And when he sees the opportunity to double launder it and wash it through this golden duck egg business, he jumps on the opportunity. Oh, so he's already got a different Walter White. This is his second Walter White situation. This is his second Walter White, which is why he's instantly able to buy an $8,000 car and a brand new suit. Right, right, right. Okay. Dean Jones is his patsy. Yeah, he's going to pin everything on Dean Jones. That's That was his plan all along, is that everything's going down. Dean Jones is, was going to get pinned not only for the gold hoarding, but like some fucking meth distribution. He was like, wait, what's that about? That fucking Tony Curtis is gone. <laughs> His wife gets a call from the bank. He says, you've been passing bad checks. You need to pay up or we're going to call the cops. And his wife says, oh, wait a minute. I'll be right down. I have something that you might want. And she brings in the golden egg. The bank is like, "Um, that's not legal tender. We don't take fucking solid gold. And she's like, well, what do I do with it? They're like, take it to a refinery. So she does that. And she gets 900 bucks for the gold egg. Uh, she uses that to pay off her debts and buy some stuff for herself, at which point they figure out the way that they're going to launder all of this money and refine it is that they're going to have her do all of it because, to the best of my knowledge, she's a hot babe and nobody asks questions. Um, they're... Theory is that if she delivers these solid gold eggs to the refineries and they say, where did you get this? And she says, from my duck, they'll laugh and flirt with her and then she'll just take the money and go. Not a bad plan. Seems to work. Uh, And they end up making $40,000. That's the thing, though. It actually does work. Yeah. Um, oh, I actually, Sean, I, I wanted to ask, because I know you've probably already done it. What is $40,000 in today's money? I did do it. <laughs> 40000 is 300000 That's one plan 442 right there. <laughs> they make a whole 442 out of that, and it only took them one Scaramucci. Um, uh, so... <laughs> See, the problem with this is that I have to wait for your laugh. The lag means that I tell a joke I know you're going to laugh at, and then I have to sit here like a friggin' moron and be like, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, waiting for you to laugh at it. That's the best, though. That's so fucking funny. While all of this is going on, the refineries start asking questions, and they call up the Treasury, which brings us to our villain of the piece, Richard Nixon. (laughs) Bring me that duck. It really is. The the main treasury representative is an actor by the name of James Gregory, who plays a character named Rudledge. I loved this guy. I loved everything about him. I loved how much he stopped enunciating. Like, the first scene that he's in, he enunciates, and then as the movie progresses, he stops pronouncing any form, any semblance of a word. Like, it's so fucking funny. He's in a bunch of different things. He plays one of the villainous apes in the second Planet of the Apes movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. He shows up a lot. Uh, Like you're saying, I became convinced that most of his line readings amounted to him going, because I couldn't understand a single fucking goddamn thing that man said. 
I like made recordings and I sent it to you guys. And I was like, what the fuck is this guy saying? He's just, he's just making sound. And then like people are acting as if he's saying words. <laughs> I feel like he had a bet going. Like the Foley guy or like the sound guy, the guy holding the boom pole was like, I will pay you 50 bucks if you can get through this next scene without saying a single word. <laughs> now the concern that someone is manufacturing gold, they don't really suspect it's a goose that lays golden eggs. They just suspect that someone has found some form of alchemy that can produce gold. And all of the governments of the world start panicking. And you get a montage of every single government having a very weird, stereotypical joke reaction to it. What were your thoughts on this? Before I comment on the weird French thing. It's a favorite game, Spot That Racism. Okay, yeah. Uh, what is it, Japan? They say that they'll figure out how to make it cheaper or something. Yeah. You're making gold for $9, we'll make it for eight ninety five. Pretty terrible. It's a very stereotypical depiction of Japan. It's a Japanese actor doing an over-the-top caricature who's talking about how they will underbid any American method of making gold. Um I don't ask this to argue. I just ask as a legit legitimate question. Is it less racist that most of the national stereotypes are white or does it matter? Uh, I mean, I don't know. The other ones are kind of like, all right, it's a kid's movie. The French guy's going to sound French. The British guy's going to be all like, oh, bye, Jove. This guy really stood out to me like it was uh it was like oh oh okay yeah well okay they went there all right it, it was also that it was the punchline for each montage yes you're right you're right that's a good point it was structured as the punchline yeah and so it got the it got the the biggest the amount of focus right at the very end um one thing i will say about this whole scene though sean is uh i liked the idea of it is the fact that they're like no one else knows this besides us in this room and then <laughs> five seconds later the phone's ringing and every uh, head of state in all the different countries in the world know about it um it just made me think of uh let's see an anchorman where they're like well that escalated quickly because uh, there's no <laughs> reason why any of them should have known this <laughs> it's like global conflict like five minutes later because of this fucking duck. Yeah. The thing that stood out for me, other than the racist Japanese caricature, is the French head of state. The joke associated with them is they say, how dare the Americans manufacture gold? All of their gold is ours. When I heard that, I was like, what joke is that? Is this a joke about the French holding American debt? I... I wasn't aware that that was ever really true, other than maybe you're talking about 1785, you know, like early American Revolution, yeah. the French might have held all the American debt. But since then, that doesn't seem true. And I was like, what is this joke in reference to? Again, this is a very specific joke that is only relevant for like a three-year period. <laughs> in 1965, Charles de Gaulle, the president of France gave a speech where he derided the international monetary system and the ability of the American government to operate on a fluid pseudo-gold standard, where they allowed the dollar to float in response to gold, depending on the needs of the American economy at the time, whereas most of the other governments of the world had to peg their currency to both the American dollar and a gold standard. This was known as the Benton Woods system. Not the bimetallist system? This is, in 14 episodes, the second time I have had to discuss bimetallism and the yeah. gold standard in response to Disney films. Yeah. Like, how... What the fuck is this? Yep. The bimetallist system is, is 19th century gold standard monetary policy, but we're talking about 20th century gold standard monetary policy. So we're talking about Charles de Gaulle, and he said, in response, France is going to pull all of its gold out of the United States. And by that, it means we are going to convert all of our American dollars into gold, and we are calling it now. They're basically going to the bank and calling in all of their debts. So Charles de Gaulle sent all of their American dollars across the Atlantic Ocean, and he sent his fleet 
the French fleet, and they picked up all of the gold equivalency, and they brought it back across the Atlantic. And this was actually one of the reasons, other than this movie, Million Dollar Duck, that led to Richard Nixon abandoning the gold standard in 1971, because after France pulled all of their gold out of the system, it was harder for the U.S. to maintain this kind of standard because they didn't have enough gold in Fort Knox, essentially. So this particular joke that they make twice in this movie (laughs) refers to a speech made by Charles de Gaulle in 1965 and applies to a policy that was no longer law two months after this movie came out. No wonder nobody likes this movie. Except for you. (laughs) Except for me. I kind of like it. I kind of like it. It's so very specific. Basically, the Richard Nixon government, he sends the Treasury Department to go pick up this duck. Uh, I think we're skipping some stuff, but I'm just willing to skip ahead. I don't know. I don't think we are, actually. You're you're skipping over my my favorite shot in the movie where I think the last phone call that comes in mumbles from Dick Tracy just goes, (laughs) calls from him. And you get this really slow zoom in shot to like a portrait of Richard Nixon glaring at all of them on the table. I know. They're so intimidated by Richard Nixon. There is a Standard from Richard Nixon that you see from the back and somebody doing a Richard Nixon impression being like, bring me that duck. But uh, in the scenes where they're talking about Richard Nixon, there's a portrait of Richard Nixon glaring at them. And it's not the official U.S. presidential portrait. The Treasury Department has their own glaring Richard Nixon portrait that is just like, bring me that duck. I, I imagine it's an, a portrait that is akin to that of the portrait of the dead father from The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, where yeah. it changes expressions based on how bad the Treasury is doing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> when they bring in their numbers for the year, they're like, good news, sir. We're running a surplus. <laughs> that Nixon painting is like, got a big old grin on its face. They go to the house to pick up the duck, and Dean Jones's son is like, not my duck, not without my duck, and he jumps out the window and he escapes with the duck. Okay, we got to introduce a couple other characters. The Woodrow Boys. The Woodrow Boys are these no-good teenagers who live on the street, and they drive around a dune buggy. For some reason, they have a dune buggy, and they drive this dune buggy up and down this residential street, and Gene Jones hates them. He's like, duck you, Woodrow Boys! And (laughs) um, (laughs) Yes, it happened. (laughs) This is important because uh, when Dean Jones's son is on the run from the Treasury Department, uh, the Woodrow boys pick him up in their dune buggy, and now you get the traditional 1970s Disney movie car chase sequence, which is every single movie ends on a third act car chase that is just 20 minutes long and has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Freaky Friday did it. Freaky Friday did it. This movie did it. It's a very long car chase. Dean Jones ends up getting in a cherry picker for some reason, and you get this lengthy car chase around California in a dune buggy, a cherry picker, and the Treasury Department, the Secret Service. They're all after this duck. It ends up in a parking garage on the top floor where the Woodrow boys take Dean Jones's son, and for some inexplicable reason, literally the most the craziest part of this movie, and this movie involves a duck that lays golden eggs, (laughs) they decide to escape by propping a ladder across two buildings and then sending a young boy across this ladder to be like no just walk across this rickety old fucking ladder to that other building it's like of course that thing's gonna break what the fuck is going through your brain they they were like the worst written like hippies uh i've ever seen committed to film some guy really hated hippies and just said what do they say and just came up with the worst stereotypical things yeah the writer who obviously voted for (laughs) ronald reagan as governor of california (laughs) and then wrote this movie about the gold standard policy and those damn french hoarding our gold like of course he hates hippies come on one very impressive shot for that ladder stunt right because it uh, is as you said, leaning against two buildings, and then it slips and falls down and catches a ledge like ten feet down. And yeah. I watched it a couple times because it's very impressive. The kid's just on this ladder as it falls ten feet in the air and catches this other ledge. Yeah, I don't know um, how they I did mean, that. I'm sure there's probably wires that we can't see or like a mat or something, but it was actually a very good stunt. 
this kid is dangling from this rickety old ladder. He's going to fall down like six stories. Dean Jones shows up. He climbs out and his son is on this ladder holding the duck. And he's like, take my hand, son. And his son is like, you don't care about me. You only care about the duck. I was there. You tucked in the duck. You didn't tuck in me. And Dean Jones is like, it was funny. It was funny. The climax of this movie, I'm watching it and I'm like, oh, this has the same climax as The Last Crusade, where he has to choose between saving his son or saving the duck. Except it doesn't, because he just saves both of them, because he just grabs his son and then his son has the duck. They kind of undermined their own moment there, where I was like, ah, it's The Last Crusade yeah. ending, and then it doesn't really matter, because he didn't need to make a choice. He just saved both of them. So they give the duck to the government, because the government is there. Secret Service finally catches up with them. And then he gets charged for gold hoarding because that's what's happened. He's got $40,000 in response to gold that he wasn't supposed to have because this is in uh, contravention to the 1933 executive order. The judge uh, needs some evidence that he had been hoarding gold. So the Treasury Department brings out the duck and they say, I'm going to bark at this duck. And they bark at the duck. And then Dean Jones says, I'll bark at the duck because it's supposed to wrap up his arc because he's willing to lose the duck, but it doesn't make any sense. I don't want to talk about it. He barks at the duck. And then the duck lays an egg, except the egg isn't a golden egg because the magic has worn off. Uh, Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And everybody lives happily ever after. He gets to keep the $40,000. And then the the judge walks down and he gives a speech about how everyone should be able to hold the fruits of their labor and whatever happened to this country. And then he basically gives uh, the John Galt speech from Atlas Shrugged (laughs) and then walks over to the kid and winks at him and then says, just remember this kid, when you become a voting age, Ronald Reagan's going to be running for president. And then the movie ends. Welcome to the end of the film. Million dollar duck. I, I you to gloss over my, what is actually my favorite shot in the movie is that on the way to the trial, the duck is given an armed escort in the back of an armored vehicle. Like, he is that dangerous to America and the state. Uh, well, he was. All of the countries of the world were willing to go to war over this duck. And then the judge, he says, he's talking to the duck and he says, for a worthless creature, you sure caused a great deal of trouble. It's true. I'm like, you fucking kidding me. Well, he can't lay gold anymore. So, you know, from the Republican perspective, he no longer has value. Yeah. He can't, he's not productive to society. Um, also, he's a she. <laughs> That's fair. But whatever. Uh, um, <laughs> see, now we're doing well, it. I have one more thing. One more note. Uh, you covered literally everything. Uh, I know you were rushing through stuff and you added a lot to this. I, I appreciate all the work you do this, but I just have a rhetorical question. What's the age difference between Dean Jones and his wife in this movie? Um, because he's supposed to be graduating college and they didn't do anything to him. Like they didn't put like young makeup on him or anything. He just looks like 40, 50 year old Dean Jones with a receding hairline and his wife, I'm assuming is supposed to be going to college with him. No, no, no. I don't know. No, no, no. That's what I got. What are you talking about? No, she, but no. she does not look like the same age. They were high school sweethearts. He got his, his certificate of most likely to succeed. She graduated high school probably with him. Keep in mind it's 1971, so if you're 34, you look like you're 50. Uh, so he could easily be 34. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> they probably had the kid a year or two out of high school. He's like 10. They're probably both supposed to be around 30, but yes, he looks like he's 45, but whatever. And then I just had one more question. Um... Who who's this movie for? Sean, me. Like uh, it, apparently it's for you, Sean. That's what I was going to say. It's for you. <laughs> it's just for me. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't enjoy any of it besides Dean Jones, <laughs> but apparently you took a lot of enjoyment out of it. That makes me so happy. <laughs> I did. This movie was made for me. And I still put it pretty mid. Yeah. Like, I was the target audience, and I'm still pretty yeah. like, that was okay, I guess. I'll just quickly go now. Uh, I thought it was amusing in a sitcom kind of way because it was written by a sitcom writer. It was directed by a sitcom director. I thought Dean Jones and most of the actors uh, gave it the old college try. I would, you know what, I'm going to put it above 1976 Freaky Friday because it really was aimed directly at me, (laughs) but I think it is of the caliber of the 1976 Freaky Friday. It's a very similar kind of film. I'm not surprised that it's not anybody's favorite, but I do think it's kind of overhated. You know, honestly, I feel like it's better than the reputation would suggest, but maybe that's just me. Uh... Bobby, what do you think? It was tough for me to enjoy, as I hinted at earlier. I could not get past a lot of the sexism and how 
the wife's entire character was just being a dumb woman. I, I'd say it's below the Freaky Friday for me. And, like, I get that there's an era thing and, like, people could say it's a kid's movie and all that. But it, it just, yeah, it, it, it bugged me a lot. I'm gonna, I'm gonna echo Bobby here. The animal cruelty, I, I didn't think I was gonna be affected by it. Never given any thought. But, you know, not seeing that no animals were harmed and then actually seeing that scene of the dog and the duck going at it in the pool. I was like, this is pretty fucked. I can't believe this was a thing. And then, yeah, as Bobby said, you know, the, the depiction of the wife um, with, you know, the lens that we're watching with it today. Sure, it's just a dumb character, but it was kind of meant to be... Uh, we took it as being more than that. Uh, coupled with the fact that my own ignorance, I had no... Uh, goddamn idea what the plot of this movie even was, you know, because like, I couldn't figure out why they couldn't keep the gold. I was like, what is happening in this film? Uh, and so I put it, actually, it's it's pretty low. It's number 12. It's a, just above even Stevens and the Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin for me. All right, fair enough. I am going to uh, have to just glide past the fact that you both are like, I don't like the uh, animal cruelty. I don't like the sexism. And then I'm like, this movie was made for me. Um, but, but, but guys, guys, the, the economics of it, you don't understand. <laughs> I don't disagree with anything that you guys are saying. Uh, so I hope nobody listens to this and judges me for the fact that I didn't hate it quite as much as both of you. But no. um, yeah, yeah, it's it's not a great film. You know, it, it, the thing is, at, at the heart of it, like, you're never in your life ever going to see another movie where, you know, the movie is Richard Nixon versus a duck. Realistically, <laughs> that's all you could ever ask for from any movie. <laughs> You know, we've already talked about 1971 because this is the same year that Bedknobs and Broomsticks came out. Uh, so I'm not going to go over that again. Instead, what I'm going to say is that, boy, if you thought this was shocking to find a movie that Sean likes more than anybody else in the world, do I have a surprise oh for God. you? Next week, we are doing The Country Bears. I just watched <laughs> it. And oh boy, I'll have something to say. <laughs> I'm so excited. I've seen that movie once a long, long time ago, and uh, I'm, I'm super excited to watch it and talk about it with you guys. Until then, uh, Robbie, in your best Richard Nixon impression, uh, say tune in next week to oh. the podcast War Tennis I was going to do my best impression of No Thanks, I'm Not Thirsty, but okay. <laughs> well, as long as you do it as Richard Nixon. No thanks, I'm not thirsty. And Bobby, um, uh, as Richard Nixon, I want you to do your catchphrase. What the fuck is my catchphrase? It's <laughs> <laughs> something about like... No fried food? How'd you keep your health? No fried food? <laughs> How do you keep your health? <laughs> no thanks, I'm not thirsty. Tune in next week to the podcast war. Tennis shoes. <laughs> Quack. That's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks. <laughs>